The information presented is in no way to be considered as a standard of care, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnoses, or treatment. The information is provided with no guarantee. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute providing of medical, legal, or regulatory advice. Good morning. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of Blue Crew Medicine. Today, we're going to do a little bit of resuscitation before intubation. Um, I'm joined once again by Davis Holiday, one of the flight nurses here at Air Care. And our first time newcomer is Charlie Swearingen, who is one of our CCPs out of Air Care 3, uh, longtime flight medic here. Uh, started here, came back after he took a little hiatus. Um, glad to have him back here. Glad to have both of y'all here this morning. Thank you. Good to be here. So, this is obviously a hot topic around critical care medicine, hot topic around here anyway. Um, the concept of resuscitate before you intubate or make sure you establish perfusion and maintain perfusion throughout the intubation or advanced airway management process. Uh, something I wrote a few notes here before we started. One of the things I want to bring up was identifying the need for intubation. So a lot of times we proactively manage airways. That's quite common around here. We do it all the time. Um, but this also applies not just to airways and intubation, but also positive pressure ventilation, whether it's BiPAP or CPAP or what have you. It can happen either way. Um, as long as you break a vent out or a box, you have potential to have issues. Mm -hmm. So considering that as far as resuscitation management, any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, we've, anytime you do any type of education and this comes up in the RSI and you kind of mentioned it, like it's not just that it's cardiac output is what drives that blood pressure. And every single time that we do something that nicks away a tiny bit of cardiac output, I've always called it like a gremlin. Like it, you get too many gremlins and there's trouble. And so the medicines we give can drop cardiac output. The, the process of intubating can drop a tiny bit of cardiac output, ventilator. It's all, so you start nicking away that cardiac output and all of a sudden you're like, oh, I have no idea why they're in cardiac arrest. Because you, they were hypotensive that you iatrogenically caused, you know. It takes that extra um, step in thinking because you get so tunnel vision on airway, 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 and just taking that extra step to think, what are we doing to the cardiac output when we're doing this, whether it be drugs or positive pressure, whatever. Um, how do you combat that? It's just that one extra thought that you just slow down and think before you, you know, rush into taking that airway. And then we've got a really good job over the last couple of years as far as education. We swapped on the basic side. We went from ABCs to CAB. I would attribute this to the C. Think about perfusion. Think about circulation before you start playing with airways. Yep. Totally agree. As far as the big, uh, I would say the biggest culprit or biggest gremlin, I like that word, uh, that we use when we talk about this kind of stuff, interthoracic pressure. So... Introducing interthoracic pressure inside the chest, decreases venous return, decreases cardiac output. All of us are quite familiar with it, used to it. That's one of the biggest culprits we deal with. Are there any other ones that y'all can think of off the top of your head that you might deal with just besides that? Um, Charlie brought up a good point with the drugs that you're using for induction. Um, you know, specific ones can lower your blood pressure. Um, you just kind of want to take it like, I kind of hammering on that but you got to think about what these drugs are giving I mean none of the drugs we give are benign and some of these can really drop a blood pressure and then also if you go not the paralytic route somebody can vagal when you're sticking a blade in their mouth I mean that can that can lower their blood pressure too 
Yeah, and you know the vent is not the only thing that changes that intrathoracic pressure. I mean, you give a you give a big old slug of rocuronia or succinylcholine. I mean, essentially all those muscles that are now paralyzed that help keep that little bit of a tension, negative tension, that's gone. That'll drop blood pressure. I mean, so I totally agree that none of those meds are, are benign. And, and uh, it's really funny, though, when you start talking to other people and you start asking them, like, what do you guys do? It's like, okay, so so you don't touch blood pressure then? Or, you know, that you'll, you'll, you'll find folks that are like, well, I never even really thought of it. It's like, and your point is perfect, like, but see in front of A and B. <laughs> I mean, like, you need to prep them before you hurt them because that's what we're doing, essentially, is we're taking that stuff away. And we all know that they're, we, well, I can just bag them. Like, yeah, but what are you, that's just for the ventilation portion. What are you doing for perfusion? Do something to fix that. Like, if you take their airway away, we're going to bag them. Or we take their, you know, their blood pressure away. What are you going to do now? <laughs> how can you? Exactly. How are you going to manage that patient throughout the perfusion process, not just the airway process? Right. So that's airway management, all the, but there's a whole other like you said, a sidestep to this whole deal. Mm -hmm. So identifying the patients that need resuscitation before intubation. This is often a, I won't say controversial, but it's a disputed topic. So some patients may need X, some patients may need Y. Everybody's a little bit different, Davis, to your point. It, it's a tailored approach to every different patient. So for years, for example, with pediatrics, everybody gives atropine, right? So are you giving atropine for what effect? Everybody has their own method. So most of the time, if I give atropine, I'm using it for it decreases a little bit of secretions and it buys me a heart rate. Kids are heart rate dependent, right? right. But are there other drugs that could do that too? Or are there other drugs that may need it? Uh, most people didn't realize that's what they're doing. They're resuscitating for the intubate when they give atropine. That's that's the whole concept behind it. Right. But it was just a an RSI, a checklist for pediatrics. Anything less than 16, you have to give atropine. Right. As far as the states, everybody is familiar with shock. What are you all, as far as defining shock or somebody that, hey, I know right off the bat I'm going to have to do full court press resuscitation. Are there, are there patients that come to mind or numbers? I don't, I don't like putting numbers on things. but um, Yeah, I mean, so at the base level you're looking at, is this a crash airway or is this an elective airway? Um, a lot of times where it's hammered home, the resuscitate before intubate is in trauma. You know, we've had, I had specifically a trauma patient that, we get into the ambulance. She's obtunded. She had a GSW to the abdomen. Um, we elected to resuscitate before intubate. And after a unit of blood, all of a sudden, we don't even need to intubate her. She's squeezing our hands, saying thanks, you know, telling us who did it, all that kind of stuff. So um, <laughs> it can even save you from having to take an airway if you get that perfusion. Yeah, that's 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 interesting call in case um, – and. And we don't think of uh, too often the the protocol or the guidelines, the medicine that we do is like, all right, I need to do this, this, and this. But too often we're not seeing like some of the offshoots or some of the the more difficult cases or maybe even endpoints. And that's definitely not talked about enough in in training. Is like, what's your endpoint? Where are we going? You know, and um, and uh, you know, with with you know, we we're talking about the you know, controlling that blood pressure and, and some of the cases like when we started flying when I came back here and I flew a bunch with you Will and, and um, I was baffled like A-lines why are we doing A-lines and I remember thinking like what is I mean seriously this is crazy and when I talked to other people throughout the country like why are y'all doing that I was like I get it that was my skepticism too but let me tell you something it was very simply said to me once um, I don't have to feel for a pulse I can see it. it's right there and there's objective proof that there's a pulse and that what we're doing is making an immediate change. And I was just like, all right, 
All right, that that's good. And then the first time you actually do it where somebody is crumping and you slam that A-line in and you're like, okay, we're good or, oh, crap. <laughs> you know, they're, you know, and it, it's amazing to see. It's literally just the difference of, you know, your subjective feeling or, you know, especially in an aircraft where you can't really hear, uh, you know, your heart tones or anything like that. But and the, and the electrical activity is electrical activity. But once you see it, Man, it's a game changer. It's like almost night vision goggles for groups who've never used night vision goggles. It's a whole new level of vision. It frees up your hands. It allows you to do whatever you want to do. And I can just look at a screen and be sitting over here mixing, doing, pushing, playing, whatever I want to do. Right. Everybody's familiar with, you know, you define shock, but okay, blood pressure less than 70, they probably need something before I intubate them. Those are the ones that, yes, they will, I won't say always, but pretty often they're going to go into arrest, especially in trauma. But you get the patient that's, okay, they got a blood pressure of 95. Well, a lot of protocols around the country, and whether it's ER or ICU or on EMS, if they got a systolic greater than 90, 90 they, they don't need a presser whatsoever. Or their MAP's greater than 70, they don't need a presser whatsoever. Those patients that are, quote-unquote, cryptic shock, or they're in a little bit different state, how do you help identify those patients to say, hey, this patient may decompensate, so I'm going to do a little bit of something? So that's the danger in putting numbers on things because it's not equal for everybody. Um, you know, in Mississippi, we have a big hypertensive population. Um, is that 90 normal for them? Uh, do it with your assessment. Uh, you know, are they mentating appropriately? Are they getting blood to their brain? Um, are they diaphoretic? You know, look at their heart rate as well. You can kind of compound those things together. We're like, okay, they're tachycardic. Um their blood pressure by the number is okay, but are we heading down a path where are we going to be reactive or proactive? And it's better to be proactive. Yeah, and, and you get down to like, uh, it's a very good point of, of Mississippi and, and numbers, right? Um, the, uh, the fact that like using something with your assessment, like shock index and mentation are two of the things that, that I love uh, to, I mean, well, that should be used, period. Um, but that changes too. And so like I usually just tell people, man, if that heart rate is bigger systolic, there's a problem. I mean, I don't care what the number works out to be, but that, that if you're not paying attention to that, then don't worry. You will have to in a minute. <laughs> yep. And then add the patient that's on beta blockers on top of that. Right. Yeah. And it gets really confusing. Though. Right. You're like, oh, that five metoprolol every day, that doesn't do anything, right? Oh, yeah. No, that just makes your life really hard here in a minute. Mm-hmm. The other thing I'd add to that is cap refill. And I think it's one of those forgotten about. It takes two seconds to look at. Um, I know both of y'all, you've watched me do it. Most of the time when I walk into a room, assess a patient, first thing I do is fill a radial pulse. If it's somebody that I'm really worried about a fusion or I can't feel radial pulse really good because of their body habitus, ideology, the four plus edema that they have going on, um, cap refill usually is a pretty good indicator mm -hmm. just to kind of say, hey, is this delayed? Is this not? And if it's delayed, okay, well, then I need to do something here. Right. Maybe that's baseline, but maybe not. We're always very on the side of caution versus not. Mm -hmm. The other patient I wanted to bring up that you kind of need to identify is the difficult airway patient. So if you got walk in knowing it's a 38-week gestation pregnant patient or it's a 500-pound person or somebody that's got a cleft palate that you know is a difficult airway and you know it may take a little bit of extra time and extra manipulation, even though you've got the entire bed filled with toys um, to facilitate airway management, those difficult airway patients do you – do y'all approach those differently or do you look at them differently or is there a, that's a really interesting topic because not every patient is equal, right? You got to think about what's going on with them on top of the difficult airway. 
Um, a lot of times in those patients, I like to give a push dose of epi. Um, if you know you're going to be in the airway for a long time, um, what's the first thing that happens uh, when they don't have enough oxygen is they're going to start getting bradycardic. So the epi will buy you a heart rate. Um, that's the one that I like for those. It's just, you know, you, you have to you have to look at what's going on with them, though, um, as far as, you know, what is their idiot? Why are they at the hospital? But um, blanket patient, I guess, would say difficult airway. I'd go with epi in that situation, just a little push dose of it. And in that case, you're doing the same thing you're doing in, with atropine for peds. And I always had a question. I was like, why are we not, why, why don't we give epi uh, in that particular case for peds? And so, because I mean, it's not just the, you're, you don't want to, you're good, they're going to, like you said, hit that uh, vagal nerve, heart rate drops, heart rate contributes cardiac output, cardiac output contributes to blood pressure. So wouldn't epi be better there? Because you'd have a two bang for your buck drug. And yeah. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm humble enough to know that, like, I clearly don't know everything, but, I mean, what do you guys think about that? Why why would, do we not use epi? Is there another reason? Does it tack the heart too much? The only thing I can think of is atropine dries them up a little bit, but it takes so That's long reason. usually to do that sometimes that if you're, like, I give atropine, then I go on and do something else for, like, one or two minutes, let it really kick in and actually start working to do that. But the whole, and y'all have watched this, part of the reason I've asked both of y'all to be here today, you've watched this slam, bam, thank you, ma'am, I'm going to push atropine, then I'm going to push Versa, then I'm going to push Rock. And then, okay, well, everything should be better. It's a it's a smooth approach to all this stuff. Yeah, that's, gotta, the, that's the thing that me and my partner really focus on is like any airway, like even the crash airways, like if you slow down and think about what you're doing, have all your ducks in a row. If it's a difficult airway, you got your bougie ready, you got all the steps of, of what you may run across, slow down and think about, give your, give the medicine time to work. You know, most patients, you can bag them if you need to, to buy yourself some time, but just slow down and think about what you're doing to make the process go more smoothly. The I got a new partner. Uh, Jared's awesome, smart, smart kid. Uh, he's going to do great things. But like when he is doing something new for the first time and he gets quiet, I'm like, talk it out to me explain to me like I'm a, like I'm the student like and so he'll he'll start to you know explain things and the next thing you know he's it's calming down doing things slower more methodically and uh, that, that that was a gift uh, one of my mentors gave me a long time ago that you know anybody new I try to share it with him like slow down and explain to me what you're doing yeah and a lot of people I mean we do it all the time in orientation especially you know when you're walking through airways we make them talk through the anatomy talk through everything I taught a class not long ago and I'm like hey right, I need you to talk through everything you're seeing going through it and people were like Man, you're so mean. You're making people do that. Like, why are you like you're like pimping them out, making them do an anatomy class while you're doing this? And it's like, no, 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 no. I'm not. I'm not doing it that. I'm trying to make them calm down and understand the process of what they're doing and be able. One, the biggest part of that is let your partner know what you're seeing so you can go behind them. But two, it's letting them get in a rhythm, letting them understand. All right, this is what it's supposed to be like. And if that rhythm changes, all right, now I know something's wrong. Right. It's being able to pick up on the subtle cues. Like, yep. you know, I knew if. When I worked with Mark forever, you know, if Mark flipped his blade and turned it to the left, he wasn't seeing what he wanted to see. I could just, I, we'd have to talk. And like, if he went like that for some weird motion, he's trying to get a different view and he's trying to manipulate the blackula and he can't see nothing. So I'm like, okay, well, it's time to do full request. From, but that's from an airway standpoint. But the physiology side of the standpoint, there's the reason why there's two people in critical care, right? So there's one person that's manipulating the other, the other person looking at the physiology side of it, looking at the patient and the resuscitation and their mm -hmm. perfusion status. So for us, that airway management, that's where a lot of us, you can't just totally, hey, you're going to manage the airway, I'm going to walk away from them. 
it's a two-person process to watch everything. Everybody says, you know, in the ER hanging out, all right, well, they got to document the SAT every so often, the entitles every so often, all those things. That's kind of keep everybody in check. All right, what's your SAT now? What's this SAT now? Yeah, that was something that was really beneficial for us when we did our surgical airway um, in the process. It it took five minutes from the time where we knew we were going to have to, we, we attempted direct and then went to surgical. And the whole time, we had a nurse calling out vital signs so that when we got to a point where we didn't want, we were like, okay, push Epi now so that we can buy a heart rate and so that we can keep going. Um, so it's really beneficial to have that other person calling out vital signs and for them to be thinking, okay, like when you, when you have two critical care, you know, it's easy to see, like if Charlie's up at the bed intubating, it's easy for me to just stare at him and, you know, kind of be there. But uh, if I'm calling out vital signs, it's, all, it's also a, a thing for me to prompt me to say, okay, well, maybe they need a little push of something else so that we can buy some more time. And as we mentioned before, every patient's different. So everybody's going to react a little bit different to positive pressure or BiPAP or whatever. There's plenty of patients over the years. I'm never forget the one first patient I've put on BiPAP on a Hamilton. And I'm like, all right, how's this Hamilton going to work? Like, how's this, how's this really going to go? I'm, I, I bought in. I'm a really big Hamilton guy, but like, how's this really going to go? And this dude, CHF, flash pulmonary edema, and has a blood pressure in the 70s. I'm like, all right, this has potential to be really bad. Um, <laughs> how is this really going to go? So, you know, put him on a little bit of Levo on the backside and put him on a little bit of vaso because he's acidotic and say, all right, well, how is this going to work? How is this going to go? But watching, all right. Mark's putting the BiPAP mask on him, digging this, and I've got the monitor and the vent sitting side by side so I can see both of them, mm-hmm. both of them and get them in the field of view. Monitor shouldn't be at the foot of the bed where you're not looking, right? Try to right. put it up, up in the head where you can see what's going on. Yeah. So when we're talking about these patients and how we're going to resuscitate, there's uh, three big kind of categories that put it in. you got volume, you've got pressors, and you've got procedures. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about volume just both medical patients and trauma patients because it's pretty much the, the groups they get mixed into. So for medical patients, everybody's familiar with normal saline, LR, plasma light, all that kind of stuff. And then there's always blood. What are your thoughts about picking patients to use volume for versus not using volume? Um, I don't, I, I really don't use volume that much on my medical patients. Um, most of the time, you know, we're picking those patients up in a hospital and they've already received, you know, however many liters of fluid. Um, and I go the presser route on those. Now, the trauma patients is typically simultaneous where you're doing blood. And then if you're still wanting a little extra, you know, you'll give the vaso on top of that. But um, I really, on, on the medical side, I don't know. I just, I, I never really steer towards volume. Yeah, I got to have a reason, right? I mean, so like, I don't just give it to give it. Like, so I think as a paramedic, when I first started, like everybody got a little bit of fluid. I mean, you well, know, that's what you yeah, have. Yeah, I mean, that's right? what you have. Right. And then so, um, and it's specifically with the medical patients, it's like, okay, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm totally like you, Dave. It's like, I'm not just going to give it. I'd have to have a reason. So, you know, if they're DKA or something, okay, fine. But, but if you have like a, 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 if they're tachycardic, I mean, they're, they're tachycardic because they're either scared, they're uh, in pain, um, they're hypovolemic, right? Or hypoxic. And there's, there's one other one I'm missing, but um, the, those five main things that, happens in kids happens to adults and so like if you figure out like you give them sedation or pain medicine or a little fluid bolus you know or at that point if if they if they don't turn around their heart rate doesn't slow okay maybe i will give them a fluid bolus and there's just got to be a reason we're just not gonna 
give them fluid for no reason. But, um, but again, I did a TikTok like uh, maybe a month or half or two ago and it was on blood. And so the, the whole gist was, you know, stop giving fluid to the bleeding patient. <laughs> so if they're thirsty, then they get fluid, but if they're bleeding, then they need to get blood or some type of product yeah. and, um, and not always the same exact product for the, the same exact job. But uh, it was amazing how many people were like, well, you know, that's, that's all we got. I was like, I get it. And I get that there's a point that, you know, this is, goes back to there's numbers aren't just, you know, numbers are just numbers, but in the thought process, like you give a little bit, just don't, don't go give them a liter or two. I mean, yeah, like, don't give them all of it. Right. right. And then like, even in 10th edition of ATLS, it still says give a bolus of normal saline. Now right. it doesn't say how much per se. I think it says a liter, but like my mind is like, okay, yeah, they're, everybody's dehydrated that's bleeding out. So yeah, sure. Give them a little bit of something to, Increase their volume, but then necessarily after that, don't just water it down with everything. Give them some blood and something on top of it. Right. Is there any? Have y'all found any blood product that's a little bit better than the other? Do y'all do plasma PRBCs? Is there a choice for y'all? Which one you use first? I typically in trauma start with plasma, um, and then I'll do the PRBCs. Um, I think that it does. It does better with volume resuscitation initially. Uh, the plasma does, um, but of course they need. You want to get as close to whole blood as you can. Um, but I, I just I don't know. That's what our trauma team likes, and this, that's what I usually gear towards. That's interesting because uh, the new kid coming in, and we didn't have blood. Uh, well, we kind of did. I guess we would go. I heard. Uh, Steven say the green bag, you know, I remember this old green bag. That's like a little lunch bag that we would go get, you know, for the listeners. Like it, it was anyway, he said that earlier today and it was funny, but, um, but now there's a new kid coming in and, and actually getting to use a multitude of products. Uh, I, I never even thought of it, but that's a, cause I, I, as of right now, gravitate directly to pack reds to give oxygen, but I know that oncotic pull, the plasma is, is unbelievably, and, and of course all the clotting factors, because if all we have is PRBCs, then the rabbit hole, the deeper we go, we're going to get, they're going to get K-Centra eventually with calcium and bicarb and all the stuff. So that's really interesting. Um, I'm glad you said that. I mean, and, and now that we have the access for whole blood, that mm-hmm. changes that everything up. But um, I'm the same way. I, I, plasma seems anecdotally to be a lot better for me anyway. I mean, I understand the studies and the cloud features, like you said, but anecdotally as well, it also seems to work better. All right. I'll adopt it. Working our way to pressors. So this is more of the hot topic of what everybody has. Again, to the point of some people don't have everything. Um, we're very fortunate here. We have access to a lot of things, both here on the airframe and level one trauma centers and some hospitals that may have one or two pressors and that's about all they got. And they got to make dirty epi out of that. Right. Um, so the big, the big four I kind of wrote down that most everybody's pretty familiar with are Epi, Vaso, NorEpi, and Neo. Um, I'll add atropine on the back of that mainly for kids, but those are the big four. So as far as dosing for Epi, let's talk about adults and we'll talk about kids. Is there, what dose do y'all typically give? So first of all, let's talk about how to mix it. Okay. So everybody on the truck has cardiac Epi right? What you're going to give in a cardiac arrest. So you take a flush, chunk a CC out of that, draw up a CC of Epi. Uh, it's 16 mics per ml at that point. Uh, usually give 16 mics to start and see how they do. You can always give more, but I start with 16 mics um, and see how they respond to that. And it's typically pretty immediate. You'll see it'll be like 30 seconds or so before you see a change. And if they 16 need more, or 10? 
You're right. Ten. Excuse me. <laughs> math. No. I'm a nurse, not a mathematician. We can edit that out. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So Keep you going. draw one cc out. You put it in. All right. Anyway. Exactly. No, I think we usually um we we we'd like to do that to have it on hand because it's super easy to do. Um, and then you know we'll give I guess ten at that point <laughs> instead of sixteen. Um, but you can. You got Levo in your head, man. I know what you're I know. I know, I know where it's going. That's that's the next one, right? But yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, mix it out, and then you get a hundred mics of Epi and a ten cc flush, and you can kind of give as little as you want. A lot of people uh, in the peed world they call them Epi spritzers. Um, I don't know how I feel about that. That's yeah, it's very okay. um, But it works. I mean, I, I get it. You get a little bit of sprinkle, a little bit of this. Typically, I use it. I do the same thing. That's more for adults. Sometimes uh, I'll do twenty. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's twenty mics per ml, and do two hundred mics total. Depends on what the patient looks like. Depends on what the cardiac output looks like. Biggest thing with epi for me, decision factor is obviously heart rate. So what I'm trying to buy is heart rate and that catecholamine release and then what their catecholamines look like before. So if I'm getting ketamine for intubation, am I probably going to give epi? Yeah, maybe, maybe not. Um, if I've got a patient that's bradycardic is on a beta blocker, am I probably going to give epi? That's a pretty, pretty good likelihood. Yep. I mean, that's, that's probably going to happen. Yep. Um, but also mindful, the patient's on a beta blocker for a reason. They probably have an old sick heart. Do I want to give them a whole ton of you? No. Am I probably going to mix the 10 mics instead of the 20 mics? Yeah. And then how much you're giving at a time? Just all, what do you usually do? 10, 20? Yeah, just a CC or two at a time and see how they respond. Like I said, you can always give them more, but once you give them all of it, you can't take it back. Right. Luckily, that one cooks off pretty quickly. Some meds don't. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's what I like about the push dose is you're you're microdosing these patients where if you know they don't they respond poorly then you just don't give them any more and it, it wears off pretty quick. And the, the thing that you're describing like where you know you want to see if it works and that's I think I think too often like we it, no matter how you start paramedic school or you get into transport uh, you know for nurses like you get to a point where you know, you're, you're going down the list of, of the stuff you have to do. And too often, and too often, I think sometimes, especially newbies, you know, they come in and, and they, they don't think through like, okay, I'm going to do this. What am I expecting? What is good? What is bad? You know, what is a little bit, what is a lot good or bad? And, and I think you just nailed it. And that's the thing is like giving a micro dose, you say, okay, that, they responded well, good. That gives you number one, a feel good. Like, okay, I'm in control. I mean, I can, I can augment what I'm about to do and protect them. Um, it's just a good weapon to, to do that. I think too often folks that are new and maybe even, maybe, maybe also folks that are complacent that's been doing this way too long. And I mean, imagine some of the listeners are going to be like, you know, well, I would never do that. Well, I mean, my question would be like, why? Well, I mean, like if you are not doing some of these things in practice, if you're not allowed to, that's different, you know, but you have to follow your protocols and your medical direction, but you also should be able to go to them and say, Hey, in this, we had this person die before and their blood pressure tanked during a procedure. I mean, couldn't we have fixed that? And the answer is yes, without question. Moving along to pediatrics and epi, um, the dose most of us are kind of going with these days is 0.1 to 1 mics per kilo. And it, it's such, that's a big dose range for kids. But it depends on where they are, how far how far behind the eight ball they are, um, and what they like. Are they on an epi infusion already? A lot of people just do epi infusions and call it a day. But again, that slow down process of if you're dealing with a kid that's a difficult airway, which is when most of these kind of occur, you get the cleft palate kid that's in the middle of repair, hasn't had a good day, and all right, well, let's put them on epi infusion, wait three to five minutes, slow down, get all my ducks in a row, let that kick in. Okay, yeah, I know they're going to be a little bit... Uh, resuscitated before I even start and they've already got some of this on board. So it's going to take a little bit longer for the heart rate to drop. 
with the push dose again, it's point one to one. It's typically the dose we're all playing with. But I, I, for me in peds, it's really a lot easier starting infusion most of the time. If I've got to get up, paint an IV, let it kick in, let it go. Just making sure it's actually going and running first. Right. And working. <laughs> and working. Epi and trauma. Everybody kind of, are you still using it? You're staying away from it? What's What's the thoughts? I stay away from it because I want to see what their heart rate is to see if their shock state is getting worse. I don't want it to be drug-induced. I want to see what it is, so I will stray away from it and trauma. Yeah, good point. I remember, basically, I hear people say all the time, like, well, we don't give pressures and traumas. Like, I mean, not ideally, <laughs> but guess what? If people are trying to die in front of us, we need to do something. And um, Yeah, I think that's a good point, dude. That's, uh, I haven't thought of it that way. The other thing for me is trauma trauma heads. My biggest thing as far as Cushing's is looking at bradycardia because you're going to see it a lot pretty quick. I don't want to mask that as well. With multi-system, you know, chest, belly, pelvis, all that's jacked up and broke. But, like, if you're trying to play with a head game too and you got that true multi-system going on, that's where I don't like it. Yeah. All right. Which, which is why I think vasopressin is is such a – I mean, in, in trauma, in – you know, for push dose presser, I mean, the fact that you get two bang for your buck via action, right? It, it's a big molecule. It's going to recruit water. They give themselves their own fluid bolus, and it's their plasma <laughs> that's there. It's beautiful. And then, of course, it's vasoconstrictive. Uh, you know, it, I it, that over anything else is – and I, now that I've seen it, because I've never used it until I came back here, and it's just amazing. And I know it's expensive, but it is what it is. I mean, you know, it's uh... – is the expense worth the patient's life? To me, it is. Absolutely. I don't. I don't care about money. I'm not. Uh, yeah. Um, that's for the guys in the other offices to deal with. I'm. Mm-hmm. I don't, I'm fortunate not to have to worry about that too much. Mm-hmm. So we get invasive person, which led in perfectly. That's where I was going. That's. I think. I don't want to speak for everybody on our team, but it's probably everybody's favorite. Uh, as far as the onset, that's one thing that gets disputed a lot. What do you all see as far as how fast they're going to onset? Is where you start actually seeing effects from a vasotation push. Pretty quick. I mean, it's almost immediate. Yeah, I probably would have said minutes, couple minutes, you know, at most. Maybe. And, and I think the reason why some people are like, oh, well, vasopressin's not going to look for so long. It's going to take a minute to work is the infusions sometimes do. Well, that's usually so my, with vaso, if I'm going to push them with vaso, I already have the infusion mixed. And it's like I'm pushing it as I'm hooking up the infusion to start. The infusion's your flush. Exactly. Um, and when we're talking about vasopressin and pushing adults, we're talking about one to two units at a time. Mm-hmm. Our protocol here is one to two units, max of four total. Uh, so you can repeat it if you need to. And then we can call for orders to get as much as we need to to facilitate whatever we got going on. Right. We use it a lot also because it, man, vasopressin is a big, like you said, it, it helps two banks for the buck and it gets your blood pressure going and it lasts a minute. That's the other thing I like about it. It'll buy you 10 minutes usually. There's that moment that you, we, like, you're working one of those calls, you're like, oh, it's going. <laughs> Take it off a little bit more. Like, it's a funny moment. And we shared a moment with uh, Jared. We had a pretty sick uh, kid that was ejected uh, in, you know, right before we took off, we put a chest tube in and gave blood and all that. And that was one of the things is like, okay, gave vasopressin. And then on the way back, it was like, it's about 12, 15 minutes. I'm like, Give, hit him again. <laughs> We're gonna, we're not there for another twenty minutes. So let's well, hit them again. And always and then the infusion. Yeah, everybody's naturally vasopressin depleted, so might as well just give them back with it. And the infusion we're talking about is no more than 0.08, just units per minute. Now it's been done higher in GI and everything else, but that's what's typically approved. Uh, most of us for the infusion I've seen, 
0.02 units per minute and 0.04 units per minute for a lot of us. Now, next question I want to bring up, vasopressin in kids. You kind of just said it, but do y'all use vasopressin in kids? Yes, is the answer. So. <laughs> um, it's a it's a new thing uh, with the pediatrics, so you can tell that everybody's just kind of coming around to the idea of it. But yes, I do. I hope so because I've given it. <laughs> <laughs> the um, there's a couple of different ways people can give it three to 120 uh, milli units uh, per kilo is typically the generator accepted when you start doing the math and add up to about a 60, 70 kilo patient. That's about the same as 0.04 and 0.4. Um, most of, uh, a lot of people I've seen just reading charts here lately because pulling everybody that gave vasopressin here recently, a lot of people are just doing infusions with kids. Just start the infusion, but it's a very proactive approach. It's the patient that's going to be depleted. Usually it's trauma, multi-system trauma. It's a two, three, four-year-old. And they're bleeding out. We're going to give them some blood products, but we're only giving 10 per kilo. Anyway, we're kind of playing this whole, we're going to give a, do a whole lot of math game. Everybody's got the tape all the way down to the ankle, little leg, writing everything out. And they just start the infusion when they walk in the door. Uh, is that something y'all are commonly doing as well? So the one, the patient that comes to mind for me was a nine-year-old um, rollover side-by-side it was an absolute disaster. Uh, we did not start the infusion on that guy. Uh, we actually gave him, we treated him like an adult, although he was nine years old, just to, the kid was in arrest when we got to him. And this was more of a, we have to give him the best shot to like, yes, I know there are limits of the max dose limits, but we were trying to think outside the box to give this child the best chance at survival to get him to a level one trauma center. Um, and we were doing two unit pushes on this child and we did eventually go to the infusion, but we had so many other things going on where taking the time to string up a medicine was not in the forefront of our mind. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I would do the infusion initially, but for that child specifically, it was, you know, let's go. So, Full court press, let's yeah, give it all away. Exactly. And it's interesting, like the, um, you know, it, it brings up a tiny bit of a controversial issue. Like, and there's a lot of times where, you know, we we're on this podcast, we're talking about doing all this stuff. We're really just talking about medicine, right? Resuscitation medicine. And too often, like, well, I can't do that. I have to do a blank, blank, blank. It's like, you know, luckily we work with a group that um, allows a little bit of ladder ability, a little bit of you know, medical freedoms, uh, and we don't squander it. But, uh, in the end, like if, if your group of people out there don't want you doing some of that stuff, I mean, push to try to do what you can to get changed. Cause sometimes a tiny bit extra going a little bit more the extra mile. I mean, um, I don't know how that one fared, but, um, I mean, going the extra mile on occasion actually does result in a good uh, outcome where they leave the hospital and people say, well, you know, we're not going to do it that much. It's like, I get it, but and, and so therefore maybe it doesn't matter, but it does what matters to that one that got out of the hospital. Yep. I mean, you know. Well, and you're given, and a lot of times, we, especially with trauma, we start talking about vasopressin especially, you're given vasopressin, but you're also given products too. So it's, it's a simultaneous and multi-system approach. There's not just one drug or one treatment pathway or one procedure, one thing's going to fix it all. Right. Especially when we're talking about resuscitation for intubation, right? You're going to, it's a multifaceted approach. So like, hey, I know that what's one of the biggest things you do in dope? as far as post-intubation, right? I'm going to look for a pneumothorax. Did I pop something? I hope not. But that's always one of those things. All right, well, do I, let's lead us into procedures here in a minute, but like, do you fix it or do you not? That's all those kinds of questions. Yep. So another, another presser we're going to talk about real fast. Nora. Well, before you get there, I actually had a call. Uh, this was 
Paul Reilly and I, um, and uh, the we were uh, we had a, a little. It was must have been like a four kilo kid uh, that we did everything for, and then we're in the air, and then we got just a little too high in altitude, and because all of a sudden the kid who was fine before now looks pale, now looks um, uh, getting blue lips and 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 mucus uh, membranes, and so like we start looking around, we run through dope, like it's not dislodged. I pull the kid out, I'm like I'm looking at it by bifurcating the vocal cords. Okay. You know, go through obstruction, none of that, you know, get to, um, yeah, tension pneumo. And then I looked out the window and realized that we were higher than normal. We were just trying to, you know, get around some weather and then realized that we popped a, I mean, that was the only, only thing left. And on this five key, four kilo kid having to, you know, not Where's miss, but get it right. Uh, that, that I learned a lot from, but, uh, and then immediately fixed it. So, um, I don't know. We, as again, as we keep talking about how to handle medicine, that's the thing I hope people really take away. It's like if you see something wrong and you have the ability to fix it, fix it. Don't just sit there. Don't don't wait for cardiac arrest to happen. That proactive, as David said, proactive versus yep. reactive. That's that's always something we've always bring yep. up. Going with norepi. So Levo has become pretty much a staple as far as pressors system wide, whether it's medical trauma, whatever. Uh, put them on the Levo. Let's see what happens. Everybody likes the alpha, everybody likes the beta. What are y'all's thoughts? Uh, push dose Levo has a little bit of literature in anesthesia. Um, there's not much there to substantiate it. We're oh, they probably have it. They just haven't shared it yet. Yeah, out I, in 10 years, probably. Right? Okay. Those guys. I'm fingers crossed it comes out next week. Yeah. But that, you know. Um, but what are y'all's thoughts on using Levo as a resuscitation tool prior to intubation? Do y'all use it pretty regular? Or? All the time. All the time. Preach it. I mean, it is. I, I, they're going on the infusion anyway and give them a little bump to get them where I need. Absolutely do it all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's a little, it's a little bit less of the uh, beta effect. So like you get a little bit of heart rate without like really packing them out. Yep. You know, I think I like it's, it's more cardiac, I won't say protective, but more cardiac safe than some of the other stuff. Cardiac sensitive. No, it's, sensitive either. it's like you're, you got somebody with a sick heart or potentially sick heart, COPD year that's seven yeah. years old. Right, you don't know they have a sick heart, but you're assuming at some point in their lifetime they're going to have a sick heart. So I don't really want to give them all the beta stimulus in the world um, to make them start throwing those fun PVCs and VTACs and all this other stuff. So then, then the question uh, the follow up to that is like, okay, why not Neo in that case? Nobody likes Neo anymore. Neo lost the presser war, and I used <laughs> to use it all the time. So I know you, I know you hate it. So let's talk about it. So Neo for me, it's an option. Everybody, let's just not let's not totally discount it. Um, Neo is one of those you can give 50, you can give 200 mics, whatever. Um, when we first started in pressure pressure here, it was one of the, it was preferred agent. We had either Neo or Epi. And Neo, to me, the onset doesn't work well in our world. It takes too long to work. It's pure alpha. And I don't really see the benefits. Does that make sense? Like, to me, it, it just doesn't. Anecdotally, it, I haven't had really good success with it. And I've tried to pick a multifaceted patient, whether it's multi system trauma or the septic patient, um, sepsis, it just doesn't work well. It doesn't have efficacy to me. But most of the time when we're dealing with these patients that are already so far behind the eight ball, it's not. So that gives credence then that maybe a little bit of the heart rate is the benefit because, I mean, both the vasoconstriction increases cardiac output by eventually by getting more fluid return to the heart. Mm -hmm. And then the uh, 
the heart rate go, contributes by a little bit of heart rate uh, directly into the equation. So maybe maybe that's why. I mean, it's a good way to say it. Like, well, I just haven't seen it work, and that is the reason why you shouldn't do it, and that may, or that uh, you you wouldn't do it, and and that I've listened. I haven't given Neo since I've been here, but I used to give Neo like like I was on staff, <laughs> you know, well, back in the day. And it's one of those like when you look at cardiac output. Like, do I want to give one side of the equation or do I want to give a balanced equation? It's, it's a beautiful way to well, think about it. Well, and that's the, that's the thing that bothers me with it is let's have a patient that has poor EF. Good oh. luck after that <laughs> Neo punch. I mean, nope. seriously. Bouncer at the door. Yep. Nope. <laughs> nope. I mean, you're just going to, I mean, you're smoking that right ventricle. Every, everything is not going to be happy after you do it. And fortunately, unfortunately, we deal with the multifaceted patients here. We deal with everybody that's the 18, 25-year-old healthy adult. Or the 50, 67-year-old that doesn't take care of themselves, that's super sick, that doesn't know they're sick, that should be on this entire sack of meds, and they're not, and then you just get them with something that their heart or their body's not used to, and Neo is one of those drugs that's unforgiving in a way. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't, you know, again, it's an option by all means. It works, I totally understand the OR. In a relatively controlled environment where you can really look and dig into your patients and understand them, we have a little bit of like, here's 50 mics, here's 50 mics. I can kind of get that once you're giving some fluid or giving something on top of it. But Levo to me is a whole lot better balanced. You know, if you're going to hang the infusion, typically most people do the max of Levo at 30 mics or 40 mics, depends on what facility you work with. But if you just start them off at five or 10 mics a minute, perhaps, or in the way we mix Levo is 16 mics in ML. We do the 4 and 250 bag. I know some people do the 8 milligrams and 250. It's just 32 mics. But 16 mics, um, about 15 mics a minute. If I just give them a CC, I gave them their first cent. Okay. Hey, this bought me some time. And most people don't need a whopping dose. Like, you don't draw up a syringe of Levo and slam it. Right. So I've seen it. But don't, don't, <laughs> doesn't, mean, doesn't mean it's a, the best idea. Sometimes. How much did you give? Uh, All of no it. Comment. No comment. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But... At the same time. Don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> At the same time, right? Like most of the time, all these patients need is just a little bit of help. They just need a little bit of catecholamine yeah. release. They need a little bit of catecholamine help. So give them some. Yeah. No herpes natural. Just give it to Yeah. Leading into, and we kind of touched on this a couple of times, but the procedures side of this. The common case, and I want to bring up, what are y'all's thoughts with, I've got a patient that's got a known pneumothorax or a known hemothorax, and they need to be intubated. They got a GCS of seven. They got a head injury. It's multi-system trauma. How do you handle it? How do you approach it? So I'll give an example of a patient where we did not know that she had a pneumo. We show up to this hospital. She's intubated, has a blown cuff, okay, audible air leak. We go to replace the ET tube, replace it with a good cuff, and all of a sudden she's hypotensive, bradycardic, vents freaking out, throwing high-pressure alarms, go to listen to her, and she's totally out on the right. And the reason was when we blew that cuff up and had a good seal, all that positive pressure really expanded that pneumothorax. The only thing that saved us was the fact that we put in a chest tube. So if you're going to intubate somebody with a known issue in their thoracic cavity, at minimum, needle before you intubate. I understand that. Not everybody can do the finger thoracostomy. Not everybody can put tubes in, but at least you put a needle in what a lot of times I've seen work well is you are or in our world, you get somebody that like, Hey, I don't have breath sounds over here. They're spontaneously breathing. We're going to RSI. I'm great. Cool. Here's a dart. 
I'm going to do this. And then as soon as I give you some, I give you some vaso, I give you a rock and automator or what have you. And then as soon as I get done, we'll put a chest tube in. But I made sure that through that airway management process, I didn't cause something to get worse. Right. As soon as you get the pressure in there. And, and the dynamics of the trauma and medicine in general, right. It, it, it'll change. And so like our case with that kid that was ejected not long ago, we needled him. You hear a whole lot of breath sounds on the right, but it was there. And so, um, so let me say that differently. We heard breath sounds a little distant. We needled him. Nothing really changed. He was a little hypoxic, but you know, uh, so we fixed his blood pressure and everything else. We, and then we got him in the aircraft right before we took off, you know, before that engine uh, revved up, we gave a listen, like, I'm not really, let's just do it. Let's do it right here, real quick. So we were still on the ground. Uh, I did, it was against the wall that 135. So that was an interesting, that was, that was something I needed, I needed to do to be able to. Oh, yeah. Putting a chest even, or even putting a thing of progressive on the right side is totally different. Yeah. It, muscle memory. Dude, it, yeah, tight. I mean, like, uh, and upside down too, because <laughs> I'm in the airway seat, so I needed that. But, it, but you know, if if we had not done that, I I'd get up at altitude. Paul's law contributes. I mean, even though we're not going to go that high, but still, even 1,500 feet sometimes can matter. Um, and then that drops cardiac output. And now we're back to this conversation. Are there any other procedures or things you could think of that may impede it that you may need to resuscitate on there? Uh, yeah, like what about a. Um, OG tube. I've forgotten like two or three OG tubes in the last three or four months, like since coming back. And we've, the last couple we've made sure, cause I'd literally like put a piece of tape up that says OG tube. <laughs> you know, so I can remember like not forget that, but you've, if somebody's been overbagged, uh, that pops up on that diaphragm, gets us to the point where we, that, you know, that increases intrathoracic pressure, reduces that. Oh yeah. And it's, it's a simple thing. All you're doing, they're making a tourniquet with their belly, right? Mm -hmm. It's all full of air. They've been bagging, you know, or non-rebreather for a long period of time, what have you. It's super common in kids, um, but just making it to where you can make that chest expand all the way and they're not pushing on the aorta that way or mm -hmm. the return. Uh, another one that we touched on earlier, um, putting an arterial line. If you have an elective airway where you have time, if you have a chance to put an A-line in, you're somebody you know you're going to intubate. Um, it's really helpful to have that second by second blood pressure to see like, okay, they are crashing. They do need something to where you can, you don't have to wait the 10 minutes for the cuff to blow back up and see what it is. You can react immediately. And understand that baseline is, you know, feeling for a pulse, knowing what their distal perfusion is. All right. Hey, look, it's dropping. Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't have the time to put the art line in. And for naysayers that might say, well, a line. Okay. Okay. You keep saying a line. Like, uh, the things that people will argue about it is like, well, it's not sterile. And then they'll say, well, it takes too long or whatever. The value of what we're doing, I, I, I can't, I, I mean, I will sing from the rooftops from here on out. And I've, now I'm at a point now when if a snarky physician or, you know, or, or NP or, you know, PA, like, so why'd y'all put an A-line? It's like, well, because I needed to, because we're giving vasopressors, you know, and we're trying to make, support. We're, it, critical care is you do something and it causes a problem. And they're already having a problem. That's why you gave the first thing. But it causes this other problem. And it's kind of like you're trying to give that another medicine or therapy to pick all that up. And you're just juggling it until slowly you can start removing therapy. And too often, way too often, you know, you talk with people and like, oh, you didn't do this, but you did that. Okay. So you 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 did something. But then you need to think about what the, what the effect of. And well, and what's the Johnson effect? Like you, the right. simple things of watching urine output. I mean, I, I've said yeah. it for years. Man, it, People are looking at it, and I've I've talked to so many people. They're like, "Oh, well, I don't care about your now. Put just throw the fully back on top of them. We'll figure out if you're actually doing this. Are you perfusing the kidneys or not? Right. I mean, like it's that simple. If they're making urine and they got the volume to make urine, the means and all the other stuff, they're not on dialysis for five years. But 
look at the simple things to figure out, hey, am I making a difference or am I making more detriment? Right. Poor man's CVP. It's, a, it's not just poor. It's also man's CVP. <laughs> it tells you so much. For sure. As far as managing these patients, a lot of the stuff we've talked about in this episode is honestly anecdotal and experience. It's something you have to learn and be a part of. And the more you practice it, there are umpteen thousand reference sheets that people have made over the years of, hey, have all my stuff together, have my post-expressors together, have my drugs together, uh, then have all my equipment and this, that, and the other. Are there certain steps that y'all take speaking with RSI and making sure you're maintaining perfusion that say that keep you in line or in check for each and every patient? I don't know. It just it comes so natural to to our world to where we're thinking about that simultaneously. Um, I guess it just comes to how you know we're trained to do this, but you know everything we do is not benign. Is something that you have to keep in mind where. Like you said, it's a balancing act. If I do one thing, it's going to cause a problem. You're trying to minimize the amount of problems you have. So just taking that slow, methodical approach to set yourself up for success is really key. And, you know, I've been a part of uh, groups who put together checklists and that kind of stuff. And I'm, I'm all about checklists, but I'd also don't think that it's like anything else in medicine. There's no 100%. Like, so uh, if somebody's new and they, I mean, they should be using a checklist until they can verbatim report it. Now, the argument would be, well, what if they miss something? Because you miss something. That's great. But that's why you have a partner also. And that's why you, if you need to pull something out, go boom, boom. Okay, I forgot this. You know, until you can do that without, you know, you know, getting it wrong and, at the end, and, and if anybody that ever needs that, then by all means, you need to know your limitations and 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 fix that portion of uh, of, of your of your practice. And whether if you need to have something there, then that's fine. But too often we ha- it, like if we're juggling all this stuff, and, you know, we need to know a good bit of that. But I mean, know your limitations and 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 augment it as best you can. And one thing I do, I mean, both of y'all saw me do it. If you take yourself back and go, all right, well, every patient I play with or every patient that I RSI, whether it's some, you know, routine stroke patient that is jet TPA, we're flying them here just for possible intervention. They're not getting RSI. They've got an NIH of three. Everything's hunky dory and fine. Take yourself two minutes and practice. All right. What would I do on this patient? Yeah. How would I apply this to this patient? What push dose pressure would I use? Would I, well, it's a stroke patient. Well, one of the things I worry about with strokes, whether it's a spontaneous ICH or it's a, you know, ischemic CVA is their blood pressure. Well, for spontaneous ICHs, our target now is 140 over 90. Mm-hmm. Well, if I RSI somebody with propofol, well, we don't do that. But I mean, I'm saying if somebody were to and they use, you know, all of it and pushed it real fast and I dropped their blood pressure to 60, what did I just do to this patient? It's a balancing act. Like, what is the detriment in doing that? Just maintain, well, if they're borderline, I won't say hypotensive, but they're borderline that 140 over 90, they don't have any comorbidities. They're not... Some of our Mississippi patients and patients we deal with that are on five hypertensive medicines. All right, cool. Well, maybe I need to give them a push dose or put them on a little bit of levo to maintain because I know that this atominator, this rock could potentially drop them out. Yeah, strokes are a, they're a balancing act to, I can't remember the specific statistics on it, but it's, you know, one episode of hypotension is really like poor outcomes are associated with. So, but then you also don't want to get too high, especially if they've had TPA or if it's a bleed. So it's a very it's a balancing act where you're maintaining your CPP as well as not wanting it to get too high. So it's it's definitely it's an extra thought process you have to put into it. 
you know, and we talked about fluid earlier, and that's the I, I I routinely ask this, and when I when I when I teach or whatever, um, the stroke patient that has like a one twenty over eighty, and I ask people, is this normal? I'm like, yeah, it's normal. Like, they got a stroke, right? It's like, yeah, okay, well, so, you know, then you get to the point where, and maybe one ten over eighty, and you get lower and lower. It's like, well, okay, that's kind of low, but it's. You know, are you hitting a map or a CPP of 70 and you need a systolic of 90 technically to hit that, right? It, or, uh, um, um, yeah, you need a map of 90 to hit that. So did you give them a fluid bolus? Well, no, because they're they're normal. Like, Well, they're normal. No, they ain't. If they don't have anything going on. <laughs> right. If they're having a stroke, it's a problem. Right. Exactly. And so that's a uh, that, that's that's a time that fluid actually um, would help. And I, I hate people who get strokes. But for any time, that's what's helped me coming back over the last year and a half, learning how to use all these pressors, stroke patients, because you have to hit the target. You have to hit a, a minimum map of 90. And then, of course, depending if there's a bleed or a block, you know, 140 or 160 or, uh, you know, you have to hit that target range. And so pressors and fluid and all that kind of comes into comes into play. Well, you have to think about, too, at baseline with an ischemic stroke, especially like what is the body trying to do? Why do these patients get hypertensive? Um, it's an effort to perfuse around a clot to save brain tissue. So that's where maintaining your CPP is really important. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'll, I'll be the first one to tell you, I love Diprovan for a head bleed every day of the week because usually you can use it for those dual side effects, right? I can use it for blood pressure control and I can keep them sedated pretty well. Mm-hmm. I don't have to, you know, use a whole bunch of adjuncts and I do give them pain medicine on top of that. But this is one of those cases where Diprovan for RSI may not be a good idea. You know, I mean, I get it. If that's all you have, great. Well, then consider resuscitation for intubation. Consider using a presser or something on top of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been plenty of patients that like, hey, you know, you get a little funny look when you walk in the ER, right? You're bringing this guy with a head bleed in and he's got a blood pressure that's perfect. I mean, 143 over 97, everything's hunky-dory. He's on five mics of Levo and 30 mics of Dipperman. Everybody kind of looks at you like, Why? And some people... Because I'm winning. Wow. <laughs> but some people look at you funny and they're like, why? Well, when I gave them 2.5 milligrams of Versed, their blood pressure went to 130 and I ain't playing that game. Mm-hmm. That's without the dipper van. So they're super sensitive to Versed. They're super, like, so maybe this drug works a little bit better for that patient. Everybody's a little bit different. Just kind of bring it back. Everybody's a little bit different. There's not going to be one streamlined case you have to say that. Now, I apologize for this. If somebody thought this episode was you have to do this and this and this, none of these patients are that way. But understanding why you're doing something and understanding what may be beneficial for this patient, super sound. And, you know, uh, and I've said this a couple of times and you just helped reiterate it. Um, medicine's medicine. And we're very lucky that we work with people who give us some good lateral uh, decision-making and, and we can make good medical decisions based off what we have and not necessarily completely constrained, but they also look at us, uh, they, they scrutinize what we do and, and, and everything that we're talking about now is stuff that our physicians at a level one hospital who, you know, have, have, you know, they, that's, this is in our guidelines and protocol and agree with, cause they're just basically allowing us to practice medicine. Uh, you have to follow your protocols. You have to follow your own medical direction, but this is, and, and I'm, I, a testimony of the last year and a half, this stuff that I didn't used to do, uh, 10 years ago when I left, I love the fact that we're doing it. And it makes me wonder how many people that I hurt or didn't help, <laughs> you know, when I was flying them before, uh, I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I don't know what we would do if I didn't have an A line on a you know a pretty often uh, pressers pretty often we didn't have those 
I mean, the chest tube wouldn't have that, you know, people like, wow, you guys are just doing too much. Like, no, we're just doing medicine and we have people that are making sure that we're doing it the right way, our physicians. And uh, uh, they're, they're good about scrutinizing it. Yeah. They throw it to me these days. Um, but, and that's the other thing you have to have a QA program, not to kind of get off the subject, but you have to have a QA program that challenges each other. I mean, it's not uncommon. We do every, everything we do within our program to kind of summarize why we get to do this. Every chart is QA'd, peer-reviewed, and then if there's something any kind of goofy about it, it goes to me or goes to the medical director pretty quick, and then it goes to a QA committee. I mean, it, it, everything is super scrutinized. If you step outside the box, cool, that's great. Explain yourself. I'm not saying it's wrong. It's scrutinized as a learning yeah, opportunity. Yeah, it's, it's like, yes. hey, how, how can we improve? Yeah, yeah. like, all right, Better cool. And then, hey, if this worked this time, maybe that's something we all need to look at. Right. We just got out of a eyes and O's committee here, you know, this morning, and we talked about three different cases that are all pretty awesome, all a little bit different, and they're all exposing everybody on the team to, hey, this was a different case that not everybody could see every day, and why you get to do that. Yeah, the unfortunate thing about this topic is it's not black and white. We can't, you know, put out a list of, you know, you do this for every single patient. It comes down to you have to lean on your own understanding of what is the patient presenting with. And then you have to understand the drugs at a deep level to say what's the best for this patient. It's not just black and white to say, oh, everybody gets levofed. You have to understand at a you know pharmacological level why this patient needs this drug specifically. And a lot of people, you know, we've said it before, critical care medicine, especially critical care transport to me is 90% pharmacology. If you can understand the pharmacology of what desired effect, what side effect, and how those effects can balance... Man, you'll smoke it every time. The balance. That's perfect. That's exactly right. And it's too often like we we know like the first or second line to do X, Y, and Z. But too often if you get deep down a rabbit hole, like, I don't know, uh, asthma, and you're going to oh, way yeah. down mag. You know, it's like, okay, well, what do you anticipate mag doing? You know, what are the handful of things and, and juxtapose against everything else that's happening? Well, that's a great example. Let's, 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 use, let's use that example this morning. So we're talking about an asthmatic. Let's do an asthmatic kid because those are fun. Asthmatic kid, eight-year-old kid who is, we'll say, I don't know, 60 pounds or so. And you walk in the door, they've given a gram of mag, they've given them umpteen thousand Zopinex and albuterol and an atrovent. And the kid's tacking away at 180. They're a little bit pale and you're like, and they're breathing about 80 times a minute and they're on a non-breather. Look drunk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, how are you going to, this patient, okay, first off, we're going to try non-invasive, but how are you going to make sure that that non-invasive is going to be okay? What, what, what are some steps you might take? So this one specifically is what drugs have they had? Right. You know, have we, have we considered epi? How many, you know, treatments have they had? Um, you know, do we need to resuscitate in that way? to try to get them to where they can exhale some of this volume off. Um, because when you put the mask on them, you know, this kid's already anxious. So what's that mask going to do if you're not, if you're not treating them? I feel like they're going to suffocate. Exactly. Every, every patient I've ever talked to that's been on BiPAP that can talk to me is like, man, you're going to suffocate me. Yeah. So you really have to think about like, okay, are we given the epi? Have we tried terbutaline? Have we tried mag? Have we done the appropriate doses of these things? Have they had steroids? You know, all those things come into play before you just come in. The worst thing you can do is come in and just tube them, you know, oh, immediately. Yeah. I mean, 
you got you got to take that extra step, and that, that's that's a really good example of where you can resuscitate somebody with medicines to be able to back out back off of your you know ventilatory support. Well, I, I mean, I'll I'll pick on our Peds Transport folks. They use that Vapotherm and High Flow, like it's going on a style, and it's a great tool, great adjunct if you have access mm-hmm. to it. Um, but they use it a lot to be able to facilitate the medical management so they can buy themselves some time yeah. mm-hmm. because kids will do a little bit. We have high flow on the Hamiltons too, but that warm humidified oxygen works a little bit better than what stuff we got. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but it works, it works well to facilitate. All right, well, let's try to everything we can not to see this kid and put them on bifap, you know, put them on bifap. We're going to change our PRAMs, try to make it more comfortable for them, adjust everything down. But, they're getting mag. Well, that's vasodilate and everything. Did you give them epi? All right. Did you give them enough epi? Do they need an epi infusion? And then what's tributylene going to do to them? I mean, that's beta all day, all day beta. Right. So am I necessarily worried about the heart rate of 180? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's 180. I mean, it kind of bothers me a little bit. I'd rather tachycardic than bradycardic. <laughs> but to that point, exactly. So do these patients, all right, they need another presser. They got epi. They're on epi infusion now. What are you going to choose now? Before you put them on BiPAP. Their blood pressure is, again, the same kid, 8-year-old, 30 pounds, and they got a systolic of 65. Uh, what, they're 55 kilos-ish if they're 60 pounds? No, sorry, 35, 25, 25? 25 kilos? Yeah, somewhere in the ballpark. Yeah. Uh, so, I don't know, you get 0.1 to 0.3 milligrams per kilo infusion, um, somewhere 0.25. Point three somewhere that ballpark to start off with and um and then yeah i'm not so worried like i just mentioned i'm not so worried about that heart rate uh as much as i am like i'm just trying to give them support with the blood pressure piece there mainly uh so they don't they don't slip and do that uh what do you call it cryptic shock yeah the bottom of that one i mean you gotta give them you gotta give them some fluid you gotta fill the volume right they a lot of people they give mag they know to give mag that's great but they don't give all the way to something to back it up and a lot of times I tell people, hey, if you're giving mag, just put it in whatever bolus you want to give them on top of that, and then you're you're done. You're good to go. Right. Um, and then, like, all right, well, Epi's not working. I've given him a bolus, but it's a kid, so I can't give him a bolus too fast because it's going to blow this 22-gig HIV. What else do I got in the – well, maybe leave it might be an option. I'm not going to give Neo? Probably not. Right. I mean, let's just be honest. Well, I haven't given uh, vasopressin in kids yet, but like you said, that's – I mean, and you guys were talking earlier about it, like um, – I've 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 been a part of it one time, uh, but I didn't choose to give it. I was like, oh, all right, I guess we I guess we can. And I forget forget which crew. Well, maybe it was Kevin and, and Stacy. But uh, anyway, I was just like, all right, well, I never even thought of that. So yeah, but I'm with you on the neo negative. And then I mean, all right, cool. Norepi might be a good option. Now, do I back off of it as soon as I can? Yeah, by all means, back off of it. And is norepi going to be the first thing coming off? Yeah, it's not going to help the disease process itself. But realizing, hey, all these other things need to happen before I worry about airway management because that's what's going to fix this kid. And intubating them, as you brought up, is only detrimental in an asthmatic kid. I mean, you get intubated once, what's the likelihood of getting intubated again? Like a 33% or something? It's like up, a, yeah. yeah, it's insane. And like you, like you mentioned, like that that's probably... And I don't like, and I think we all agree that like we don't like put people just inherently in categories, comma, but sometimes we do. And I think that the, the one person, the one type of patient that I don't want to intubate is an asthmatic kid. Yeah. That's not the person that... Well, it's it's a ventilatory nightmare, too, because then you're, you know, you're having to unhook the vent and manually decompress, mm-hmm. and should, your pressures are through the roof. It's just an absolute nightmare. So to avoid that at all call, I mean, it, if you're going down that route, it's because they're about to be in arrest and you have to, but it's, it's, it's a very hard patient to manage once you intubate them. 
And those patients, to, to bring it back, those, those patients, you walk in the door and they are almost in rest. They're breathing eight times a minute. It's an asthmatic. And you walk into your transfer and they've tried a couple of different things, but they just haven't been able to, they don't have the right resources to facilitate it. Do you have to intubate them right off the bat? Yeah. But are they probably getting a push dose presser? Probably. And it's probably epi. Um, and in an eight year old, they might get an adult dose. Um, give them all of it. Just try it. Try to buy yourself. You're trying to keep them out of arrest. Yes. It's a CO2 retention issue. Yes. It is an asthma. That's the proof of the problem, but I've got to maintain enough because you know, they're trapping everything in there. What's it doing? It's inner thoracic pressure automatically, right? It's pushing on all the stuff. So you got to tank them back up. So when you induce even more, you at least get it out of there. Yeah. We have a, as medics, right. And, uh, and pre-hospital, uh, transport clinicians, like, uh, we have a protocol for hypertension. We have a protocol for arrest, but rarely do people have protocols for peri-arrest, you know? And it's like, and that's this whole point that we're talking about this, this podcast is hopefully raising awareness that sometimes you got to do something before you, in between those two, <laughs> you yeah. know, and, proactive, not reactive. Mm-hmm, that's right. Guys, you got anything else on resuscitation for intubation? No, man. I think that was well, yeah, well pretty, done. Cool. Pretty good. All right, guys, appreciate your time. Thanks for coming in today. Yeah. No problem. This has been a presentation of Blue Crew Medicine.